Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, June 29th. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and I'm joined today, of course, by the man with the plan. And I mean that literally, because he's a certified financial planner. It's Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Pretty good. It's a nice hot day down here, and things are reopening, and up there, they're jumping into the next phase, so it's it's a good day. Yeah, yeah, good day. Nice weather up here, starting to warm up a pretty good bit, and yeah, I think everybody's eager to try to keep on that road back to some sense of normalcy, and every day we're a little bit closer uh, but on today's financial show, we're going to look at some of the results here of a few interesting polls that Matt put out over the weekend on Twitter. Uh, we're going to dig into a listener question that also came uh, to us from a user on Twitter. And as always, we'll have one to watch for you this week. Uh, but first, Matt, we're going to dive into an interesting development here that, um, that, that grew over the weekend. And you put an, you put an article out regarding this as well, uh, and we'll tweet that out on the feed. But the article is entitled, Are Your Bank Stocks, Are Your Bank Stock Dividends in Danger? And this essentially was in regard, this was in relation to, the news that the Federal Reserve said the banks will not be allowed to repurchase any stock during the third quarter, no dividend increases for the third quarter, uh, all of the banks will be required to resubmit capital plans later in 2020, and this is really all the product, all the byproduct of the, of the stress tests that the banks recently underwent. And it, and it just sounds like basically... Regulators could see a scenario in, in pandemic times where some of these banks could be uh, caught between a rock and a hard place. So why don't you dig into a little, a little bit of that for us? Explain, explain exactly what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the, the buybacks were necessarily the big news just because, I mean, to my knowledge, pretty much every bank has already discontinued buybacks. They did that voluntarily yeah. to preserve capital. The issue is that banks could be forced to cut their dividends. So just to kind of give you a little bit of background, the Fed announced the, the 2020 stress test results, like it does every year. But instead of just looking at the normal recessionary scenarios, which they normally use to stress test the banks, they made a special stress test, if you will, for the COVID pandemic. Um, it looked at some pretty adverse conditions. Um, unemployment peaking at 19.5% was one of them, which right now unemployment's at like 13%. So, um, a a long U-shaped recovery, a W-shaped recovery, where it kind of is a double dip, which isn't the most likely scenario. But you know, their their job is to test the worst case scenario, um, and they found that under some of these worst case scenarios, bank losses across the 33 banks subject to the test would be as much as 700 billion dollars as a result of the pandemic. That's 700 billion dollars of loans that people couldn't couldn't afford to pay back that would eventually be charged off. Now. That's not a prediction, so don't don't take this as the Fed is saying that's what's going to happen. <clears throat> the Fed is saying that under a terrible scenario, that that's what could happen. So under a scenario like that, the Fed found that banks would stay above the levels of capital needed to operate. You know, this is we're not going to have another Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers going on. In other words, right. But under the worst case scenarios, some of the banks would approach minimum capital levels, and that would be a, that's concerning to the regulators. So, 
what they did was they passed a rule, or the, they imposed a rule, as you said, they have to resubmit their capital plans later in 2020. In the third quarter, dividend payments are allowed. There's no dividend increases allowed. So at best case scenario, your bank stocks will be paying you the same dividend rate they paid last quarter, which is, you know, the third quarter is generally when banks raise their dividends because that's when the stress tests come out. So right. that's a no-go this year. And dividends are only allowed based on a formula um, based on the average of the bank's net income over the four previous calendar quarters. So in other words, one bad quarter of losses that doesn't necessarily kill the dividend. But if a bank's been like just borderline being, been able to cover their dividend and then has a, you know, a big COVID-related loss that could cause a dividend cut. Yeah. Um, we don't know yet which individual banks might cut their dividend. Uh, Wells Fargo is one of the big, highly speculated ones. Um, that could, just because of their giant exposure to consumer banking relative to some of the other banks um, yeah. that, have in, that have investment banking divisions and things like that. So we'll actually find out later today. Um, banks are allowed to kind of come out with their own statements saying what's going to happen. But long story short, bank dividends suddenly became more of a fluid concept than they were a few <laughs> days ago. Yeah, and you know, I was thinking about this as as I was reading through everything, and I mean, to me, I mean, this isn't this isn't terribly surprising. I mean, when you see the amount of when you see the number of homeowners who are applying for forbearance um, these days, I mean that those numbers are are you know, those numbers are high. They're, they're abnormally high. It's for understandable reasons, right? I mean, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic is, has really uh, stuck it to a lot of people. And, 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 it, and you know, folks are, folks are having a tough time making ends meet. That's certainly understandable. And so I, I guess when I was reading this, to me at least, it felt like, you know, this, it may seem kind of like a bad news headline when you see it on its own. But when you really get right down to it, I mean, this is actually good in the sense that, I mean, it's, it's, it's doing what the stress tests were really intended to do. I mean, it's good that we have this framework that we can put these banks through uh, to, you know, in order to avoid, you know, it, you know, the, the the degree of something like the financial crisis that, that we witnessed over a decade ago. Again, so, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, I, you know, I, I could see where people would be worried about the headline, but ultimately, I, I see, I see the logic. I understand it. I'm not worried. I mean, is this is this something that bothers you? Is this something that you feel like investors should be worried about? Well, I mean, it's it's a big question of uncertainty. Um, I mean, the stress tests are designed to kind of gauge uncertainty, and right now, uncertainty is off the charts when it comes, especially when it comes to banks. Right. Um, like, for example, we said unemployment at 19.5 percent is their the worst case scenario they're testing out. Well, for the time being, most people who are unemployed can afford to pay their bills. They're getting an extra six hundred dollars a month in unemployment benefits through the end of July. So, yeah. will that run out? Will it not run out? Will the government extend some sort of support? Um, all the you mentioned all the forbearances and things like that. Are people taking them because they need them right now? Are people taking them just because they're guaranteed to get one? Um, and it's it's you know banks are pretty much giving mortgages mortgage forbearance to whoever needs it. Um, yeah. Auto loan forbearance, credit card forbearance. You could, they could, it's really hasn't been hard to get a forbearance if you wanted one. Right. So the question is, are people taking these because they need them because they wouldn't be able to pay their loans without them or because just they're available? So it's it's really tough to say right now what the long-term economic effect of the pandemic is going to be. Um, and this, this is just 
right? The uncertainty spectrum is just off the charts right now. And when the stress test is testing the worst end of that uncertainty spectrum, you're going to see some pretty dire results. So yeah. I'm not terribly worried about it. I own a lot of bank stocks, as you know. That's you know, it's next to real estate. I'd call it my second favorite sector. <laughs> um, but I own a bunch of bank stocks, and I'm not planning on getting rid of any of them soon. And I think any dips that come on the heels of this news could be a buying opportunity for long-term investors. Um, in the short term, I'd expect kind of a, a little bit of a roller coaster ride till we get more clarity. Yeah, I'd imagine you're right there. Um, the the one thing that I started thinking of, I mean, it, you know, it's a very very big world of banks, all the way from small banks to you know you know your mid tiers to your to your big boys, and um, you know, one of the questions I immediately knew I was going to be asking you when I knew we were going to be talking about this on the show is what banks are poised to be able to come through this better than others. I mean, as an investor, certainly you have to be looking. At you know, a couple banks that that you feel like are going to be able to manage their way through this better than others. Any any out there that investors need to be keeping a close eye on? Well, first of all, it's actually really important to point out that there's there's a chance that none of the 33 banks will have to immediately cut their dividend. Right. Um, again, the formula is based on the last four quarters of earnings, and until this past quarter, most banks have been very profitable. Yeah. Um, so I, the one that is a kind of one of the the one big bank that I'm concerned about is Wells Fargo. Um, and I mean, it, that makes sense. I mean, they have a very large mortgage presence. I mean, that does right. make sense. They have a large mortgage presence. They're pretty much exclusively focused on consumer banking. I don't want to say they have no investment banking because their their people reached out to correct me a few weeks ago, actually, because <laughs> um, I kept saying that. But they have some. They have very little investment banking presence. Um, so they're pretty much levered to the health of the consumer. Yeah. Um, and based on the current share price, I think Wells Fargo's dividend yields well over 8%. So even if they cut it, wow. it'd probably still be a high dividend stock. Yeah. Um, so, but that out of the, out of the big banks, that's the one that I would, I would worry about. Um, for, for the most part, I don't think anyone's going to have to cut immediately. We'll find out today. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think we're going to see a, a wave of bank dividend cuts today. Yeah. I, I bet you're right. I mean, and, and there is the, there is the big question mark of the back half of this year, right? I mean, we we there's just so much that you just simply don't know. And I mean, you know, if these if these outbreaks continue to to gain traction, in in you know, more states have to walk back their reopenings a little bit. I mean, that just there's a massive chain reaction that kind of goes on, um, you know, from something like that that you just can't you just can't. You could flip a coin today to say whether it's going to happen or not. You just don't know. Right. I mean, all the, the rollbacks of, of reopenings, a lot of it's just kind of like reverse common sense, I'd say. Yeah. Um, you, you know, crowded, <laughs> crowded bars probably shouldn't have been opened. I, 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 would argue that is, I would argue that is correct, you know, and thankfully for me, you know, I'm, I'm an old guy now, so I don't go out to bars and hang out. So thankfully, that's not, that's not crimping my lifestyle. But man, Matt, I remember when I was younger very well, and this would be crimping my lifestyle. So I certainly understand folks who are champing at the bit to get out and do stuff. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's been a tough year thus far. It doesn't sound like it's going to be no. getting any easier, at least in the near term. But, uh, I, you know, at, at the end of the day, for me, at least, I, I take solace in knowing that, I mean, this was the point of the stress test to begin with. I mean, this is ultimately something that, to my eyes, it's a net positive for investors, particularly investors in the financial sector. 
Yeah, no, I, the stress tests are definitely a good thing. We need the stress tests. And yeah, it's and the big important thing is it's not that the, these banks were in danger of failing the normal stress tests that we've seen year after year after year after the financial, <clears throat> financial crisis. They added this special scenario in for COVID, just, you know, worst case COVID recession. Um, yeah. And none of the banks failed. They just kind of brushed up against the minimum capital levels is what it sounds like. So, no, it's it's definitely a net positive. It shows the the relative health of the banking system compared to, you know, before the Great Recession. I mean, in 2007, for example, I don't know how many banks would have passed the COVID test. Um, <laughs> Probably not. They didn't pass Probably. the normal recession test back then. So Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, well, I guess it's just that the that, that old old adage, you just prepare for the worst and then hope for the best. And if you do that, you probably keep yourself in pretty good shape. Uh, Matt, let's jump into a couple of polls that you fired off over the weekend here on Twitter. I like these. I voted myself and I will reveal what I voted for. Yeah, people were asking. In good time. <laughs> but let's look at the first one here because I, I thought this was a this was a Neat question. I like the idea behind it, particularly given that we've been talking a lot about real estate investment trusts recently. And the question you asked, you asked the best type of commercial real estate to invest in over the next 10 years. And if your favorite isn't on the list, then write it in. But we're just going to go with the four options that you gave us for the for the best type of commercial real estate to invest in over the next 10 years. You had the option of retail, data center, industrial, and residential. And overwhelmingly, by by you know more than fifty five percent of the vote, fifty five percent of the votes uh, voted for data center. And I will tell you, I I too voted for data center. Um, and and I you know a lot of that just has just has to do with this understanding that the world is just a wash in data. And I mean this this five G rollout and as technology continues to get better and everything is connected and the Internet of Things and smart cities and it just there's a ton of data out there. It does feel like that's a good opportunity. I, I have a feeling maybe though, and I don't know what you voted, but I have a feeling that you did not vote for data center or you would not have voted for data center. But but what was your thinking there as as data data center winning winning the uh majority of the votes? Um I wasn't surprised to see that data centers winning. Um, one, they've been the best perf- performing type of uh, real estate investment trust during the pandemic. Um, you know, the, the pandemic itself is actually somewhat of a tailwind as people you know work from home more. You need there's more more data flowing from remote locations than ever before. Sure. Um, the, the rollout of five G is going to be a big catalyst. Demand for data centers is not going anywhere. In short, um, I act, the the one thing that surprised me and the one I voted for was industrial. Ah, uh, see, I actually would have guessed you voted retail. That would have been oh. that was just based on our retail conversation from a couple <laughs> weeks ago. I I like retail, but best type to invest in, um, you know, it's it you have on a risk reward basis. I would have to go with industrial. Um, industrial means things like warehouses, distribution centers, those giant Amazon buildings are types of industrial real estate. Yeah, um, I like industrial as a play on e-commerce. Um, the the need for for warehouse space and fulfillment space and things like that is not going anywhere. Um, as more retail shifts online, um, we're going to just need even more. Um, Prologis is the biggest in the space, and they put out a statistic that says when a retailer shifts from a physical presence to an e-commerce presence, it needs three times the distribution space. Wow! So that's a big catalyst going forward. That was what surprised me. I wasn't surprised that residential finished second. Um, you know that's a pretty good place to be. There, you know, the, the millennial housing boom is is coming. 
Um, <laughs> millennials are kind of jumping, getting into their primary, you know, household formation years. Um, so, right. but I was surprised that industrial didn't do better. Um, you know, e-commerce is such a big trend, and I, I'm surprised people didn't think of real estate as more of a way to play it. I'm not surprised retail finished last. I will say, yeah. Um, well, you know, I mean, there's a lot of retail REITs that I like. My retail isn't dead basket, which I. I published a formal article on this week to put pen to paper and, and formalize that. Um, but I think there's some good opportunities, but as far as best from just a, a pure investment, you know, best risk to reward um, potential, I, I, I can't make the case that retail is the best place to be. Um, well, but so I wasn't too surprised. I was surprised that industrial didn't do a little bit better. Well, the second poll that you put out there it was another fun one, and I mean, I I wasn't surprised to see the results, um, but you know, it's an it's an interesting one to think about, regardless. And that ha- this has to do with the war on cash um, stocks, the war on cash basket. So you you ask the question, which war on cash stock has the best chance of doubling from its current share price within three years? And you know, you had the options there: the war on cash holdings in Square. PayPal, MasterCard, and Visa. And, you know, it's important to note, you, you were talking about the share price doubling, not the market cap doubling, because that, that, that can be different, sure. um, especially when you consider the, the share buybacks from some of these companies. But, you know, I, I wanted to go ahead and just give a quick rundown of the performance of these stocks in the war on cash basket since, the, since it was started back in July of, of 2017. Um, the basket itself is up almost 175% versus the market's 30%. Wow. But it, it's interesting to see how the stocks have performed because right now, as, as of right now, MasterCard is up 128%. Visa is up 93.5%. PayPal is up 186%. Square is up 287%. So three of the four have at least doubled since inception. In in Visa actually at one point had doubled. I mean it pulled back a little bit. Sure. Um I wasn't surprised to see the results here. Square was the overwhelming one with 71.4% of the votes. Uh, you know what, though? I actually I might have gone a little contrarian here. I, I voted for PayPal. I'd be interested to know what you voted for. Well, I mean, I voted for Square. You're probably not surprised to hear that. I, no. was, su- I was surprised at the margin of victory. I figured a few more people would have said PayPal. Um, yeah. I'm not surprised at MasterCard and Visa. They're, they're huge companies. There's, it, it would take a lot for them to double. Um, the same reason that I think I think Markel has a better chance of doubling than Berkshire Hathaway, um, right? Just because sheer size alone is is a is a factor, and Square is by far the smallest of the four in terms oh, yeah. of market cap, yeah. by far. Um, so it, it, I'm not surprised Square won. I'm I'm surprised at the the difference, and like you said, um, I, PayPal does some buybacks. I think if if I'm not mistaken. They do some, but really most of their money they've been they've been focused more on but, investing their money and really trying to grow that business. Right. Well, Visa and Mastercard pay dividends. Out, they're the only two out of the four that pay dividends, and they are the only two that are aggressively buying back stock. I would say. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, that seems like it's really part of the thesis in investing in those two companies, given how big they are. I mean, you do have to account for the fact that buying back shares is part of the thesis because I mean, it brings that share right. count down and and can help keep that PE ratio somewhere where the market. You know, is 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 going to be excited about so, the stock. So, if if say Mastercard and Visa were to buy back, you know, over the next three years, which is I said in this poll, if over the next three years they bought back say fifteen percent of their shares and paid another, you know, five percent total in dividends, 
then that kind of lowers the bar to how much the share price would have to gain for the for the for it to double. Yeah. Um, yep. So it's not inconceivable that Mastercard and Visa would double. I mean, combined they got about eleven percent of the vote. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, I'm not surprised. Like I said, they're the two biggest companies on there by by a good margin. But it's not impossible for them to double. I mean, there's there's a big market opportunity. Both of them are growing earnings at you know close to twenty percent a year. Absolutely. Um, so it's really not inconceivable for either of them to double. I mean, your well, war on no. cash basket, all four of them could double for all we know. Well, and that's that's just it. I mean, to this point right now, that's essentially three years since inception. And we've we've seen three of the four have doubled, but all four of them had doubled at one point or another. So it, it could certainly happen again. There's no doubt about it. Um, but you know, hey, listen, that's we, we continue to like that market. Certainly, certainly still like all four of those companies. Um, but just an just another interesting way to think about them and, and, and the opportunity they still have out there in the market. Uh, speaking of opportunities in the market, and this is a listener question we received from a listener on Twitter, Cameron Galinas. Um, and and Cameron reached out asking a question. It's not really a financials company, although I guess we could say it is in the sense that it's Shopify and and they have that Stripe dynamic, which Stripe not being a publicly traded company, if you wanted to get exposure to Stripe, then you could just invest in Shopify and, and that, you know, there you go. Um, but I, I thought it was a good question. It, it sure it sure is one that I think a lot of people have to think about from time to time, particularly these days, as so many of these stocks have just done so well. Uh, in in really a fairly short period of time. Cameron asks, he says, I have been invested in Shopify for a few years, so naturally it's become a large part of my portfolio. Every time it would get over 20% of my portfolio, I would sell some so that it didn't become too much. Every time I've regretted selling any, <laughs> is my philosophy wrong? Should I just let my winners run no matter how much of my portfolio they become? And... You know, I, I, I thought this would be a fun question for us to tackle because I'm sure that you and I, I know that I certainly have had this, you know, quote unquote problem. I mean, it's a really nice problem to have, no doubt. But, you know, it's something that does require some thought. And, it, and it's not, you know, it's not a, not a cut and dry answer, right? It's going to be a little bit different for everyone. But what's your perspective on that, Matt? Well, I mean, the general, you know, the general foolish mindset, if you will, is to add to your winners, as, as we just said. Right. Having said that, it depends on your personal risk tolerance and how comfortable you are having enough of your money or so much of your money in one stock. I mean, it, it could have completely gone the other way every time you sold, and, and you would have been happy you sold some of it. True. Um, I'll tell you that I'm currently wrestling with a similar decision. Um, the biggest stock in my portfolio by far now is Apple. Um, my, my cost basis in Apple is under $100 a share. Um, Apple's currently at about 360 I think. Nice. Uh, so yeah, I mean it's a good problem to have, but <laughs> now it's I'm I'm rushing up against that twenty percent mark I I think, um, and I'm personally not that comfortable having more than you know ten to fifteen percent of my money in any given stock. But at the same time, just kind of like same similar to Shopify, it's really hard for me to make a case against Apple. Yeah. Um, in terms of you know. In the in a worst case scenario, how badly would Apple stock price do? In other words, um, I couldn't see it going back to the one hundred level for right now. If no matter what happened, um, yeah, their ecosystem is just too strong. Seems a lot. Um, so, in my mindset, it's yes, I have a little too much for comfort, but I have a little. I have a, 
a, too much of my money in a stock that I consider very safe at this point. Yeah. So it's kind of a, a conundrum that I'm wrestling with right now. And I'm by talking about it again this week, I did the same thing last week. By talking about it, I'm committing to not selling any of it anytime soon. <laughs> but um, well. <laughs> but having said that, it's it's definitely a, a it's a it again it boils down to a question of risk tolerance. Uh, Jason, how much of your portfolio is in your biggest stock? Like what percentage? Ballpark. Ooh, that's a good question. You know, I in this I, this is one where I would say do as I say, not as I do, <laughs> because I I certainly consider myself to have a very high risk tolerance. I I, I don't have any problem seeing a position um, get get upwards of forty percent of my portfolio if if it's a company that's winning and it's growing. So I think that's really one of the first things to determine is you know it, it's one thing to buy a certain stock and make it that large of a percentage of your portfolio. It's another thing entirely to buy that stock and then watch it grow into being that outsized portion of your portfolio. That's that's a little bit of a difference there in my mind because it feels like you know, one you're benefiting from the success of the investment. I mean, the fact that it's taking up more of your portfolio is just a sign of its success. And so, for me, I, I would say round round number. I, I think my largest position is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of around forty percent, maybe, uh, maybe not quite that much. But but it has it has grown into that. It's not something where I bought that you know, amount. And and so I think that's always something worth considering. Um, but, but to your point, it is dependent on your risk tolerance. Everybody's a little bit different there. We always talk about that, you know, sleeping at night sort of, sort of litmus test there, right? I mean, if it's something that's keeping you awake with worry, then that's your answer. You need to trim that position back because if you're not sleeping well at night because you're afraid you're a little bit too exposed, I think that makes sense to trim it back. I mean, when you look at a company like Shopify, and I, I do own shares of Shopify myself, um, I, I think probably the biggest risk to a stock like that is is the valuation. I mean, it's just, you know, the valuation is detached from the fundamentals of the business. But we've also seen that the market will give companies like that a lot of room to run if they are good, successful businesses pursuing massive market opportunities. And, and that's really what Shopify is. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like that sleep at night test is that's kind of the one I always run through my head. And if I'm not sleeping well, then I, I start to think about how am I going to pair that position back. Right, and Shopify is not a low volatility stock, so I mean, I I, I at least don't think it is by my standards. So yeah. I'd be nervous having too much of my money in a stock like Apple. I consider a relatively low volatility stock at this point. Um, so that's why I'm comfortable for the time being keeping you know that much of my portfolio in Apple. But Shopify is a higher volatility stock, so that comes into play with the risk tolerance equation as well. Yeah, yeah, it is, and and you know, Cameron, I think it. it, it Looks like you are a younger investor, so it looks like you are in that position where, you know, you're looking to grow your wealth as opposed to worried about protecting your wealth. And I think that you're at the point in your life where you can you can feel comfortable, feel okay at least, taking on a little bit more risk because you have a lot of time really to, to make up uh, for any potential mistakes. But um, yeah, it, it's just that's a tricky one. You know, that's always a tricky one, and. Uh, you know, we certainly recommend in our services, the services that I run in, in the next-gen super cycle and in the augmented reality beyond, typically we, we recommend for investors, we, you know, depending on the size of the business, whether it's a small, medium, or, or large-cap company, I mean, you're not looking for any one of those one of those positions to take up more than 4 or 5% of your overall portfolio. Those are guidelines, right? It all ultimately does depend on, on you and your risk tolerances and individuals. So I, I hope that's helpful. I mean, certainly, it sounds like you're benefiting from um, 
a nice problem and that Shopify just keeps on winning for you. And, and maybe, you know, maybe, maybe you just sort of let that thing keep running and, and, you know, you just, you enjoy the success there. Yeah, but it's definitely a good problem to have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you can't sleep at night, then yeah, I think that's where you got to look at, uh, at pairing back that stock a little bit to where you feel uh, okay sleeping at night. Um, but anyway, thank you for the question, Cameron. Very, very good thought exercise there and, and one for uh, all investors of all, all ages to consider. Matt, before we wrap it up here, we want to give our listeners one to watch for this coming week. So I'm going to let you kick it off here. What's your one to watch this week? Um, I'm going with Wells Fargo just because I'm really curious to see what happens with these stress tests. I like Wells Fargo's business. If there is a dividend cut, I think it's going to be a you know like an abundance of caution, kind of like we've seen a lot of the real estate dividend cuts. Yeah. And I think a, a dividend cut would cause this stock to go down, but I think it would be a buying opportunity. So I'm watching Wells Fargo. Nice. And that ticker? WFC. WFC. All right. Well, I'm going with one of your favorites, Matt. American Express, ticker AXP. Uh, you know, if I was if I was going to extend my war on cash basket, American Express very well would be in the running there. Um, I'm still a cardholder myself, as a matter of fact. Uh, but I, I, I saw a really neat... Uh, story here recently. American Express card members now, in, in order to help boost small businesses that have really been suffering from the pandemic, American Express card members will receive a $5 credit for every $10 spent at a small business using their American Express card. You can use that up to 10 times between now and September 20th for a total of as much as $50 in shopping credits. So I, I thought that was a neat little feature that they were adding. They, they certainly are doing, I think, a good job of of you know they're expanding that customer base. It's been so long and had that reputation as a card for the rich, I guess. But they really have done a good job of of making it now that they've got a card for everybody. It feels like. Um, but you know when I look at the stock itself, I mean the shares had a tough year, down around twenty five percent. Right now it's trading around fourteen times trailing earnings, one point eight percent dividend yield, and and we've talked about this before. It is a bank, so they are subject to those uh, regulations and stress tests and whatnot. But but it really does feel like. Um, one one of the stronger brands out there, and obviously a very well run business with with a little bit more control over their cardholder uh, ecosystem, and so I think definitely American Express is one to uh, keep on the radar. You like that, don't you, Matt? I do. I've owned a, that was the first uh, fintech stock, I guess you'd say, that I ever bought, and I still own it today. And I I wonder where you got the idea to add it to make it the fifth stock. In the- <laughs> And the war on cash basket. That's what. That's all I'll say about that. I can neither confirm nor <laughs> deny that you may or may not have had something to do with that, Matt. We'll just leave it there. <laughs> Matt, listen, thanks again so much for joining us this week. It was good talking to you again, and I hope that good weather uh, stays stays good for you down in South Carolina, and hopefully the summer shapes up to be a, a beautiful and healthy one for everyone. Yeah, happy 4th of July to everybody listening out there. Indeed, that's right. Remember, the markets are closed on Friday, and that means The Motley Fool will be closed on Friday as well. But for now, that's going to do it for us this week, folks. Remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus. Drop us an email at IndustryFocus at Fool.com. If you have any questions, let us know. We'd love to bring them onto the air and, and help you out any way that we can. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to our man, Austin Morgan, for taking care of us each and every week. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.